Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 104th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Morning, Mark. How's your day going so far? Good. Good to be back in Dayton, Ohio, after spending a couple days down in Kentucky for a work trip. So it's always nice to be home. Nice to be home. Beginning day of Q3. Yeah, yeah, strong finish to the quarter. So uh, we'll get into a little bit of that here. Uh, but first, before we get into that, um, poor showing for me at last week's golf tournament, the PGA tournament. Oh, yeah. Um, our guy, Paul Casey, was only four under. I think the leaders were 13 under. So um, I'm going to throw out another pick for this week. They're you in Detroit it. for the Rocket Mortgage, Rocket Mortgage Classic. What do you think? I'm going to go with Bryson DeChambeau, who won it last year. So he's a big hitter, make the golf course look small. So we're Team Bryson this weekend. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. Um, apologize in advance for any noise, hammering, drilling you hear in the backgrounds. We're in the midst of our office build out right now. So true. Uh, we apologize for any of that noise. Um, so as always, we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on June 30th. And these are all going to be year to date numbers. So first half performance for all of the major indexes. First six months of 2021, the S&P 500 index up 14.41%. The Dow up 12.73%. The NASDAQ up 13.06% for the first half of the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 17% for the first half. Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, up 9.2% for the first half of the year. Three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.05%. Two-year Treasury yield currently sitting at 0.26%. And the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at one5 7%. So before we get into major headlines from the week, Matt, any comments about the first half of 2021? You know, it's interesting to kind of watch the evolution of the first half. You know, you had the first six weeks of the year be, quote unquote, a continuation of 2020. And then once all that vaccination news kind of kind of hit Wall Street, you know, they all pivoted to try to catch falling knives in those reopening stocks. So just really sloppy trading, in my opinion, from mid-February to the beginning of May. Mm -hmm. And then since then, you're, you're seeing, I think, more leadership and quality. And I think that's very healthy for the market. Um, I think you're seeing overall broad participation. I mean, that points to a healthy market. Now, does this mean that we're not going to have pullbacks? Of course we are. But I think we're in a relatively good environment. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And all uh, that data was from Coifin, by the way. Yes, yes, it was. Yep. Thank you. Um, so an update on congressional bills um, from June 24th. Uh, reports indicated that a bipartisan group of senators and White House officials have established the framework of an agreement on a $1.2 trillion infrastructure stimulus package. Um, its passage is not assured, obviously, yet, and details still need to be ironed out, and President Biden and congressional leadership still need to give their blessing. 
um, but it plays as an encouraging development, Matt, and it's also a reminder uh, to the market that a $1 trillion plus stimulus package of some kind is going to probably get passed eventually. Mm -hmm. However, uh, I want to remind people that we were close in the Trump administration, and that never happened. <laughs> That's also an accurate statement. Um, you know, and I think when people kind of see this infrastructure, I'm going to throw this out. I have, um, as a talking point on our podcast next week, you know, you got a lot of these commodities that are dropping like a rock. Lumber has corrected 50% from its high at the beginning of May. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And on that news, home builder stocks moved strongly to the upside initially. Um, so we'll wait to see uh, if they get a further boost, if we get more uh, confirmation of that coming sometime soon. Yep. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned on the 24th that the debt limit could be hit in August and um, was a call for Congress to raise the debt limit. Um, hasn't ruffled any feathers uh, so far, but there are some reports that Senate Republicans might force the issue of extracting spending cuts before agreeing, uh, excuse me, agreeing to raise the debt limit. You know, it's a broken record. What is it? Every 12 months we hit this. Yeah, and, and it's and the same. It's, it's just the keeps same, getting It's the same raised. narrative, you know? So. And, you know, I, I know that we've had shutdowns in the past, and that's caused backlog issues for the economy, especially for SBA loans. That's a biggie. That's you know, one thing that, that a government can't do right now is no. they can't have a shutdown. No, you can't sit there and authorize spending and not concurrently do it with raising the debt ceiling. It mm -hmm. doesn't work that way. Right, right. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I guess that's why you and I are politicians. Yeah, exactly. Because we actually have common sense. <laughs> no, no offense to any politician who's listening to this podcast. Foreshadowing a run someday? I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I don't know anyone who would want that job, to be honest. My opinion. Yeah. Uh, moving on, this is a really interesting one, Matt. Um, and several Senate Democrats are proposing um, new baby bonds through a bill titled American Opportunity Accounts Act. Okay. And baby bonds are designed to help close the wealth divide between the wealthy and the poor. All right. And unlike regular bonds, they're not a debt instrument that's traded in the public markets. And instead, the proposal would create a federally funded trust fund account for every newborn baby in the U.S. And the bill, if passed, would create a savings account for every child with at least $1,000 in it. All right. And depending on the wealth of your family, every child will get a deposit annually up to age 18 into that account, uh, which could be upwards of $2,000 for the lowest income children, uh, which was said by uh, Senator Cory Booker. When the child turns 18, depending on the family's income, they could have nearly 50000 in this account. If the child comes from a well-off family, they'd end up with just over 1600 in the account by age 18 since they wouldn't be getting annual payments. Interesting. Um, and also, uh, baby bond recipients would only be able to use the funds for wealth-building activities, including buying a home continuing education or starting a business. So I'm assuming investing that money in the markets is a part of that since that's a wealth building activity, but I'd have to dig into that a little more. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's quite interesting. I don't know if I have a true opinion on this yet, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I think it's one way that maybe the government could uh, get ahead of stimulus needed in the future. So if we go through another tough time like we did in February and March of 2020, that people would have this to fall back on. It's just a question on if the government's going to do this and also have another stimulus 
prepackaged program that if we go through another tough period like March of 2020, is this going to be in addition to that or is this going to try to replace that and get ahead of it so they're not, you know, sending out stimulus payments during tough times, essentially? Interesting. Interesting. So, um, yeah, thought that was interesting. So we'll keep an eye on that for people. Okay. Um, tweets, articles, and research for the week. You want to lead us off? This is my favorite part of the podcast. This just gets me going. I wake up in the morning and I'm ready for the podcast. So here, let's kick it off. First is going to be some data from Compound Advisors, Mark, on June 21st. Okay. And they show a chart and it has to do with record pace of workers quitting their jobs. Okay. So let's pause for a second. Let's remind listeners, how can they see this chart that I'm about to describe? Yeah. So if you go to any of our social media pages on Facebook, Jessup Wealth Management, um, LinkedIn, Jessup Wealth Management, and Twitter, uh, at Jessup Wealth. Thank you, sir. So this chart, listeners, goes back to the year 2000, and it shows the percentage of U.S. workers quitting their jobs. It has reached a high, an over 20-year high, at almost 3%. And with it being so high, here's the question I have for you, Mark. What does this tell you about the competence of the U.S. consumer? It's high. <laughs> you don't quit your job unless you either have a plan B, you're financially sound, you're making the move to um, better your life one way or another, whether it's work-life balance, compensation, etc. And what does this also tell you, Mark, about potential future wage gains? Yeah, I think they're going to be higher because I think another portion of this is people are quitting their jobs to take a higher paying job, right? That's right. And especially with everything that's transpired in our economy over the past 12 months, you know, I'm fairly confident in saying that wages for, uh, you know, lower income historically jobs are going to be going up. Absolutely. Um, because at some point or another, these employers have to get workers in the door to keep running and operating their businesses. And, you know, there's just a lot of constraints right now. So I think you're going to see wage gains, strong wage gains over the next several months or several years even. I'm on board with everything you said. And so why am I highlighting this for listeners this week? Listeners, I want you to connect the dots on this. Think of it. If American workers are getting paid more, what does that mean about their ability to spend their discretionary income? Yeah. And that follow the tea leaves that could lead to the potential for higher earnings for some of these companies that are going to track those spending dollars. Mm -hmm. That's why I wanted to highlight it. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Next one I have for listeners has to do with the Federal Reserve balance sheet update. Also from Compound Advisors on June 21st. Okay. Can you so, just, just briefly before you get into this, just talk about what the Fed's balance sheet is? Yes. For people. Okay. So we have the bank to our banks called the Federal Reserve. They are in charge of setting interest rate policy. They also have a dual mandate. Mandate has to do with having full employment and an inflation target. Their employment target is to have an unemployment rate below 4%. I usually I think it's about 3.5% is what mm -hmm. they target. In addition, they want to target inflation at 2%. So that's their quote-unquote dual mandate. Part of their ability, Mark, is they can print money. So what they have done over the decades in various instances is they have printed money 
And then they have used that in ways to manipulate the monetary markets. There's a lot of concern in the marketplace that this printed money is going to lead to problems down the road. You know, traditionally, you print money, it leads to what? Inflation, right? That's a concern people have. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to do is look at this Fed balance sheet because it is talked about so much in the media. And I think it's misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we keep hearing about the Fed's balance sheet, how money's being printed, and how it's created a tailwind for stocks. What happens, though, when that reverses? So what I want to do is I want to take a look at the years where the Fed balance sheet actually went down, when Me they either. destroyed printed money mm-hmm. and took it out of the monetary system. Mm-hmm. Make sense? Makes sense. So the years that they did this, 2009, their balance sheet contracted. It contracted in 2012. And then for four straight years, 2015, 16, 17, and 18. So I pulled a bespoke raw research. I had Nick Whitaker on our team pull the returns for the S&P 500 during those years. Because I want to start attacking this narrative because mm-hmm. I think it's a false narrative. Okay. So in, in 2009, recovering from the uh, great financial crisis, S&P rebounded 23.45%. All this data is from Coifin, by the way. 2012. It Their was up, balance sheet decreased in 2009. That surprises me. It is. Wow. So it decreased by uh, 20 basis points. Wow. Okay. Yep. And um, that data on the uh, balance sheet of the Federal Reserve is from Compound Advisors. Okay. Okay. Uh, 2012, S&P was up 13.4%, and the Fed balance sheet declined by 60 basis points. 2015, the S&P was down 0.73%. 2016, it was up 9.54. 2017, it was up 1942 And the worst, 2018, it was down Mm 6.24%. Now, I'll note in 2018 was the biggest um, contraction. The balance sheet was down 8.4%. That's a pretty, pretty big move to the downside. Right. Okay. So why am I highlighting this? Just because at some point here in the near future, the Fed might begin to decrease the balance sheet, return printed money, take money out of the financial system, doesn't necessarily spell instant doom for the market. No, I don't think it does either. So I'm going to take it further. Okay. So there was a tweet from Ryan Dittrich on June 22nd. Okay. And what he did is he posted a chart of what happens after the Federal Reserve initially raises interest rates. What happens upon the first rate hike? Okay, so listeners, what I'm meaning by this is historically, one of the tools the Federal Reserve uses to control monetary policy is what they charge banks to borrow money from them. Right now, that's one fourth of one percent. Okay, when they raise that, the cost of borrowing money for banks goes up, and that tends to get passed along to consumers. businesses and the consumers. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there is been, he highlights these rate hikes. I'll just name the years. Okay. There was one in 2015, 2004, 1999, 97, 94, 88, and 87. 
here's the, the kicker I want to throw out there. The next three months after that happens, average return, S&P 500, up half a percent. Six months later, average return, S&P, all those data points, up 7.1. Next 12 months, all those data points, average, 10.2%. Why am I highlighting this? Listeners, the next time you watch a financial station and they're talking about a rate hike and they're talking about gloom and doom for stocks, remember July 1st, 2021, I went over the stats, does not instantly spell doom. Yeah, and I think it it just goes to show you a couple episodes we talked about having a long-term mindset, but when we have that long-term mindset, we still have to deal with all the noise in between. I think this is a really good example of why, you know, people make a way bigger deal out of, you know, interest rate policy than they need to be when it comes to concern for the markets. And two more points. If the Fed is raising interest rates, it means the economy's strong. It's doing good. They're trying to pump the brakes a little bit. That's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to say is just because I'm highlighting this is not an indicative that just because the uh, Fed uh, raises interest rates doesn't mean the market's going to do good. Right. I'm just insinuating that the narrative that comes with it is that doom and gloom. Socks are going to sell off. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that this is another one of those data pieces that it's like, I mean, everyday people don't, in my opinion, don't need to be paying attention to Fed policy meetings and the, the, the press conferences and all that stuff. Because at the end of the day, in my opinion, you know, if you're in it for the long run, this stuff doesn't matter. Yeah. What always gets me is on the Fed meets every six weeks, listeners. And what gets to me is uh, they have a two day meeting. It's over a Tuesday and a Wednesday. And on that Wednesday at 2 o'clock is where they announce to the markets what their policy is going to be. Trading on that Wednesday from roughly 1.30 to 4 o'clock is complete amateur hour. It is. It's a disaster. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the hedge funds are trying to disseminate the message and the positioning. Usually the first move is the wrong move in the market. That's just a day where, my two cents, you do not want to be trading either way. Yeah, it's just a... To my opinion, it's all noise, you know? Yep. Short-term noise. Yep. So uh, moving on, I have a tweet from Ben Carlson uh, about homeownership. So he tweeted, he actually, he he quote tweeted uh, a tweet by Michael Saylor. And Michael Saylor said, inflation in the U.S. is 24% if you want to live in a house. The median existing home price rose 23.6% in May from a year earlier to a little over $350,000, a record high. The annual price appreciation was the strongest in data going back to 1999. And Ben said the the homeownership rate in the U.S. is 66%. For two-thirds of the country, rising home prices makes them wealthier. This is actually an inflation hedge if you already own your home. So I thought this was interesting because right now you're only hearing everything about the negatives of of rising home prices. Yes, it's not a great thing for first time home buyers or people that are trying to move out into the suburbs from the city. But, you know, two thirds of the people owning a home in the U.S., that's a pretty darn good thing. I would I would, you know, uh, say in addition to, um, you know, us being in a bull market for for a decade. And I think another positive, and I'm going to try to see if I can dig up some actual stats to back up this statement. 
I'm not seeing in our practice at all clients tapping into home equity lines for mm -hmm. ATM like they did in the 2000s. No, I'm not either. I'm seeing people be a lot more responsible about mm -hmm. their personal balance sheets. Yeah. You know, uh, I think this is a great stat. I like the spin on it because this is a view that is not talked about. Because again, all you're hearing is uncontrollable house prices, but we're not talking about how it's affecting those that own them. I think this is a great viewpoint by Ben. Yeah, and then he also added on saying that after adjusting for inflation and interest rates, monthly mortgage payments are now 30% lower than they were in 1989. That's a big, big stat. So I just, I, you know, I, I don't think we can stress it enough. And I feel like we're broken records every week on this podcast, Matt. But, you know, when interest rates are this low, you know, people need to take into account, you know, how low interest rates are and not just focus on the prices of things or the amount the, of debt. Hey, right? gotta be the voice of reason, baby. Right. So um, it's interesting. So, I mean, this is this is great for for people that have been in their homes, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. You know, we've had conversations with people that, you know, they're making out like bandits on their home right now. And that's great for them. You know, the question I keep getting a lot over the past six months, and this even talks about the responsibility, uh, the good responsibility that homeowners are having. People keep asking me, Matt, should I pay down my mortgage even faster? I mean, how, how many times have you heard that question in recent memory compared to prior years? Yeah, it's a lot. A lot more. It's a lot more. Just think of the mindset of the American consumer right mm -hmm. now. It's it's very positive, and I think that bodes well for the economy, at least in the near term. Yeah, I think it does too. And you know, I just want to reiterate, you know, my stance just from a pure numbers standpoint. You know, with how low mortgage rates are right now, I personally think people should keep paying. Most people should keep paying their mortgages and invest the difference because if you can make over you know, the hurdle rate or what your mortgage interest or whatever rate your rate is on an average basis over the long term, then it, I think in my opinion, it makes sense to invest that money or do something else with that money. However, one stipulation with that, that I'll go against that and say is that if you are the person that just hates having debt and you cannot sleep at night, if you have debt that you want to get rid of, then I would say, yeah, go ahead and pay it down because, you know, I think half of the battle in personal financial planning is the emotional side of it. Absolutely. And if it's something that's making you uncomfortable, then go ahead and do it. Not everything you do has to be 100% you know, by the book. Yeah. Optimal. Right. Yeah. So just wanted to throw that out there. <clears throat> uh, last thing I had before moving on was a quote from Mark Zuckerberg. So I know, I know how you feel about Zuckerberg, but I like this quote. Um, he said, the <laughs> biggest risk is not taking any risk. I like that. I love that quote. Right. So because, again, how many times have we talked about on this podcast that, you know, it's fine if, you know, you're in 100 percent bond portfolio, you know, when the market's down, stock market's down 30 or 40 percent. But most of the time it's not. And you're missing out on this crazy price appreciation. That's just a wealth generating machine, as you once said a couple podcasts ago. Um, you know, you run the risk of running out of money before your time's done on the earth in retirement. Yep. And what's the silent killer, baby? Inflation. Inflation. Silent killer. Mm -hmm. So I like that. I mean, that, that applies to anything in life, right? You know, you have to take risks if you want to get ahead. All the successful people, I guarantee every single one of them has taken several risks that they didn't know if it was going to work out or not. So I think if you want to get ahead in life, you have to take some sort of risk in anything that you do.
Michael Jordan averaged 50% shooting. Mm-hmm. And he's still considered the greatest basketball player of all time. Mm-hmm. 50%. Yeah. It's a great point. Did you watch that documentary? I did not. That's I need great. to. Oh, it's awesome. I need to. It's awesome. I'm not a ba- really a big basketball guy or a big NBA guy, but that was good. The last dance. Yep. Okay. Um, moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. This is a shorter one because I wanted to allow some time uh, for some banter because I think I'll get you going here. Uh-oh. Um, this was a article written in the Washington Post by Michelle Singletary titled, Some 401k plans may start offering cryptocurrency as an investment option. Um, here's why that's a bad idea. And I'm hoping that with the 4th of July weekend on deck, Matt, we can provide some fireworks in this discussion because I think me and you might have a couple differing opinions on this one. Okay? I'm ready, baby. So, Just so you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm feeling spicy today. Yeah. So I'm I, I want to throw this out there. This is definitely this article in the Washington Post is very biased towards not allowing it. Okay. Okay. All right. So uh, for us all, who is a provider of 401k retirement plans, has partnered with Coinbase Institutional, a cryptocurrency platform, to enable employers to offer cryptocurrency in their plans. Under the For Us All offering, employees could elect to transfer up to 5% of their retirement balances into a secure account that would allow them to buy, hold, and sell more than 50 cryptocurrencies. The company said it will monitor employee allocations and alert them when their overall cryptocurrency allocation exceeds the 5% threshold. At the risk of setting off the cryptocurrency enthusiast, I think this is a terrible idea, said Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance at Morningstar who we've quoted on the podcast before, and she sits on the 401k committee at Morningstar. She said that the company hasn't discussed adding cryptocurrency and that she wouldn't recommend it at this point. What's your take on this? <laughs> oh, this is such a loaded question. This is such a loaded question. All right, so my initial thoughts are, if it were completely open-ended and somebody could put 100% into crypto, absolutely horrible idea. Okay. So as you were initially talking, the first thoughts that went through my mind is concerns for the trustees. So listeners, all these 401k plans have trustees. It's usually the owners of the company or the CFO, HR manager, etc. They have a responsibility due to ERISA guidelines from the Department of Labor to have a diversified fund lineup. Now, what happens, listeners, is if they offer way too many funds and it becomes so convoluted, there's some potential risk for those trustees that people could go back on them. Mm -hmm. And the first thing is when you said that there's a 5% maximum, I was like, "Mm, okay, I'm okay with that. All right. Overall, with crypto, I'm just not there yet in saying that it is an asset class that clients or people that have long-term investment money, that's not, it should not be in crypto, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. My opinion is with crypto, that is the type of money that you go to the casino with, okay? It's the wild, wild west, feast or famine. It's not going to be the thing that appreciates by one or 2%. You know, you're up 10, down 10, up 50, down 50. That is not a source of 401k investment money, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. 
So what do you think? Yeah, just to play devil's advocate, I guess I come at at it from the standpoint of, you know, I'm an advocate for people to be able to invest in other things other than just stocks and bonds. And for the longest time, only the extremely, extremely wealthy have been able to invest in what we call alternative assets because you have to be an accredited investor. Yep. So from that standpoint, I like that there's an optionality to be able to do it because it offers another area um, where you can potentially grow your wealth. And I think it provides a learning opportunity for people, too. I like the 5% max thing. Yeah, I do, too. So I'm not against having it as an option because I'm all for people making their own decisions about it as long as they're informed. Right. What about if you were the if, if if we were a trustee of a 401k fictitious company, ABC company, and we made you know, there was some sort of educational class they would have to go through in order to have this ability. I, as a trustee, would feel a lot more comfortable if they actually had to like an hour class describing exactly what is crypto, how you trade it. I would feel a lot more comfortable having that along with the 5% maximum. Yeah, I would too. Um, I just, yeah, it's, I mean, I know Arissa, it's like crazy regulatory, you know, whatever. Um, but I still think at the end of the day, it's up to the participant or the investor to make that decision if they want to be able to do that. I don't think people should not have the ability to invest in a diversified pool of assets, I guess, is what I'm getting at. So, so, so I'm all for non-accredited investors being able to access alternatives. I think that that's something that, you know, just because you have a certain amount of money doesn't qualify you to have a better knowledge about a certain investment than someone, you know, who's done their research, worked in the industry, but doesn't have the assets to qualify as an accredited investor. Yeah, I think the biggest uh, thing that they have that for is just the illiquidity that comes with a lot of those investments. I think mm-hmm. that's the biggest factor. And if, you know, the, if, if somebody who's not accredited can at least acknowledge that, understand it, that, listen, even if you really, really need this money, you can't touch it for 10 years. Right. That, as I think, the factor. Yeah, and I, there. I think I agree. I think, it, like you said, it goes back to like the education aspect of it, right? That yeah. I think that I think there needs to be more education about it in general: stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, you know, alternatives. Well, here's the other thing, Mark. You know, all these definitions of accredited investors is is antiquated. It's all old. Mm-hmm. They haven't updated this stuff. Yeah, and. You know, with as quick as the market moves today, you know, I definitely think there needs to be a continued overhaul in these regulations. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I have an idea of what that stuff should be. I'm just saying that the mere fact it hasn't been touched for this long, it'd be like me sitting in front of a client saying, when's the last time you updated your estate planning documents? And they tell me 30 years ago. Right. Yeah. You got to change with the times. Yeah. Right. Okay. I don't know. I, I, I guess I just... The 5% thing makes me feel a little bit more better about it. Mm-hmm. But again, I look at it as 401k money, long-term money, steady eddy. Yeah, you don't I, be going out there and taking undue necessary risks. And that's the stuff you put your discretionary mad money, the speculative money. That's the stuff mm-hmm. you do that with. Yeah. From that standpoint, I, I do agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, one question that we had come in from Dennis, Dennis asks us to discuss European equity market versus the U S equity market. 
some soothsayers are saying Europe offers better growth. False. And uh, <laughs> and here's the thing that I'll throw out. People have been saying that for, you know, the past five years, just because they go back to the, the U.S. market is so much more overvalued than European equity markets. You know, there's a lot more value to be had in Europe. And we've heard that song and dance for a good five years now. Now, there's two things there. The perception that there's better value in the stocks in Europe compared to the growth that the Eurozone's going to have and the translation to the earnings growth that European companies could have. Mm -hmm. I'm going to throw it out there. The Eurozone is a disaster from a growth standpoint. Socialism has brought down the growth in all those economies so far down that that is not an area overall that you go to exhibit and obtain growth. I see people like Europe for like the dividends are drastically higher. So why are the dividends drastically higher? Because there's no growth. I'm going to pull a Biden. There's no tell growth. Me, tell me how you really feel. <laughs> no, but I agree with you. I think and the biggest difference um, between the U.S. equity markets and, and the European equity markets are they have a lot more value oriented sectors is a larger portion of their, of their market. So you have more financials, more materials um, in yep. in the European indices and in the U.S. It's more tech driven. Right. So that's I think a great that's, point. That's, that's a the, great the point. biggest difference is, you know, Europe has been you know doing OK this year because, you know, energy, financials, materials have been outperforming so far the first half of the year. And now you're you're starting to see that rotation come back into tech. But I think that's the biggest difference between our markets and their markets is there's the weightings of their sectors are extremely different. And that's compare a, that compare excellent point. us to, to 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 Europe or us to to Canada. Extremely different. Right. Yes. So you just have to know that. Yeah. I mean, you, going you, into it, you look at places like Australia, as an example, very heavy in like materials. Mm -hmm. Right. They do you know, a lot of stuff uh, on the material side of the sector, you know, so you're ex that's an excellent point. So that and again, and that's and, you know, when you have that, you know, you're going to have, you know, your banks and your energy companies with higher dividends than these high flying growth tech companies. Yeah. And so, again, I, I from my perspective, not against it, but to to for, for somebody to sit there and say that Europe offers better growth, I extremely disagree with that statement yeah i'm with you i'm with you there actually that, that that poked me more <laughs> than the than the crypto yeah okay all right so we got a couple fireworks dennis keep them coming man i love that anything else before we leave it there for the week beginning of q3 earning season starts in two weeks financials report in the, the middle banks. of july yep. um end of the month is when a bulk of s p 500 nasdaq companies are going to be reporting Expect some, you know, volatility around those earnings reports for specific companies. But, you know, just know earnings season around the corner for Q2. And I am looking forward to it. All right. Well, we hope everyone has a great 4th of July weekend. And we will be back for episode 105 next week. Hope you enjoyed it, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent 
independent advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.